Hi, I'm Lisa Lutz, and I'm about to read a selection from my debut novel, The Spellman Files. The Spellman Files is a comedic novel about a family of private investigators and how the tools of the trade have turned typical family dysfunction into espionage. The story is narrated by Isabel Spellman, the 28-year-old middle child of Albert and Olivia. Isabel is essentially a recovering delinquent, and because of her shady past, has a complicated relationship with the rest of her family. Isabel has an older brother, David, who is the only Spellman to escape the family business. He's a lawyer. The passage I'm about to read is about Isabel's younger sister, Ray, who is 14 years her junior. In this selection, Isabel describes the history of their relationship. Ray Spellman. Born six weeks premature, Ray weighed exactly four pounds when she was brought home from the hospital. Unlike many preemies who grow into normal-sized children, Ray would always remain small for her age. I was 14 at the time of her birth and determined to ignore the fact that a newborn baby was sharing my home. I referred to her as it for the first year, pretending that she was a recently acquired object, like a lamp or an alarm clock. Any acknowledgement I made of her presence was along the lines of, Can you move it outside? I'm trying to study. Or, Where's the mute button on this thing? No one found my objectifying remarks amusing, let alone me. I was not amused at all. I was terrified that this child would grow up to be another symbol of perfection like David. I soon discovered that Ray was no David, although she was extraordinary nonetheless. Ray, age four. I told her she was an accident. It was over dinner after she bombarded me for 20 minutes with questions about my day. I was tired, probably hungover, and in no mood to be interrogated by a four-year-old. Ray, did you know you were an accident? And Ray started laughing. I was? It was her habit back then to laugh whenever she didn't understand something. My mother gave me her usual cold stare and began damage control, explaining that some children were planned and some were not, etc. Ray seemed far more baffled by the concept of planning a child than not planning one, and grew bored with my mother's unnecessary discourse. Ray, age six. Ray begged for three days straight to be allowed on a surveillance job. The begging was relentless and inconsolable. It was the on-her-knees, clasped-handed, insistent whine of please kind of begging that continued for most of her waking hours. Eventually, my parents gave in. She was six. Six, I repeat. When my parents told me that Ray would be joining us the next day on the Peter Youngstrom surveillance, I suggested that they lost their fucking minds. My mother apparently had, shouting, You try! You try listening to that begging all day long! I'd rather have a toenail slowly removed than go through that again. My father seconded that with two toenails. That night, I showed Ray how to use a radio. My father hadn't updated the equipment for a few years. While the radios were perfectly utilitarian, they were also the size of Ray's entire arm. I stuck the five-pound electronic device into her Snoopy backpack, along with some fruit roll-ups, packaged cheese and crackers, and a couple of Highlights magazines. The mouthpiece I slipped through the opening of the backpack and clipped to the collar of her coat. I showed her how to reach through the zipper opening and adjust the volume on the radio. Then all she had to do was press down the button on the mouthpiece when she wanted to talk. We began the detail outside the subject's home at approximately 6 o'clock in the morning. Ray awoke at 5 a.m., brushed her teeth, washed her face, and dressed. She sat by the door from 5.15 to 5.45 a.m. until the rest of us were ready to leave. My father told me I could take a lesson. As we waited in the surveillance van three doors down from the subject's residence, Ray and I once again tested and reviewed radio procedures. 
I reminded her that crossing a street without being given the okay from mom or dad would result in a punishment so awful her young mind could not envision it. Then my mom reiterated the street crossing rule. Ray followed every instruction to a T her first day on the job. I usually took point instructing Ray by example on the general rules of surveillance. You could provide a manual on how to perform an effective surveillance, but those most suited for it follow their instincts. It didn't surprise anyone that Ray was a natural. I suppose we all expected it, just not to the level at which she adapted to the work. Ray, age 8. There was a 16-year age difference between Ray and David. He was out of the house by the time she was two, and while he lived nearby, he was not a consistent presence like I was. He distinguished himself by buying her the best birthday and Christmas gifts, and by being the only member of the family who didn't boss her around. On one of his rare dinner appearances, Ray asked David the question that had always been on her mind. David, why don't you work for Mommy and Daddy? Because I wanted to do something else with my life. Why? Because I find the law interesting. Is the law fun? I'm not sure I'd use the word fun, but it's compelling. Wouldn't you rather do something that is fun than not fun? David, unable to explain to Ray why he left the family business without offending my parents, resorted to a different tack. Ray, do you have any idea how much money I make? No, Ray replied disinterestedly. I charge $300 an hour. Ray appeared confused and asked what she believed was the next obvious question. Who would pay that? Lots of people. Who? Ray pushed, probably thinking she could tap the same spout. That's confidential, replied David. Ray mulled this new information over in her head and continued on suspiciously. What exactly do you do? David contemplated how to answer the question. I negotiate. When the confusion did not lift from Ray's face, David asked, Do you know what negotiating is? Ray responded with a blank stare. Negotiating is something you do on a daily basis. Some negotiations are implied, like when you go to the store and give the clerk a dollar for a candy bar. Both parties are essentially agreeing on the exchange. You always have the option of saying to the clerk, I'll give you 50 cents for this $1 candy bar, and he can say yes or no. That's negotiating. It's the process of coming up with a solution that different parties can agree upon. Does that make sense? I guess so. Do you want to negotiate something right now? Okay. David considered a negotiable topic. Let's see, he said. I would like you to get a haircut. Since Ray's last professional haircut had occurred well over a year ago, this was not the first time such a request had been made. And yet each appeal was met with the same unsatisfying response. Ray would administer her own haircut. The resulting lopsided ends and jagged bangs were certainly an eyesore, but to the dandy in my brother, Ray's hair was truly offensive. My sister, tired of the repeated haircut harassment, snapped back, I don't need a haircut. I'll give you a dollar if you get one. I'll give you a dollar to shut up about it. Five dollars. No. Ten. No. David, I'm not sure this is a good idea, my mother interjected. But this was David's job, and he couldn't stop. Fifteen dollars. This time there was a brief pause before Ray said, No. David, sensing weakness, went in for the kill. Twenty-five dollars. You don't need to cut it all off, just trim the split ends. Ray, showing an aptitude for bartering beyond her years, asked, Who pays for the haircut? That's at least fifteen dollars. David turned to my mother. Mom? 
This is your negotiation, said my mother. David turned back to Ray, ready for the final settlement. Twenty dollars to you, fifteen for the haircut. Do we have a deal? David asked, reaching his hand across the table. Ray turned to me for a nod of approval, before the handshake. You're forgetting about the tip, Ray. Ray pulled her hand away and turned to me. Tip? Yes, I replied. You have to tip the hairstylist. Oh, what about the tip? Ray said to David. That is when David shot me an annoyed look and shifted from instructive older brother to ruthless corporate lawyer. Forty dollars total. Take it now or the offer's off the table. Ray turned to me again and I knew David's patience had come to an end. Take it, Ray. He's ready to walk. Ray held out her hand and they shook on the deal. She turned out her palm and waited for the money. As David paid Ray her $40 bribe, he appeared pleased that he was able to teach his little sister something about his line of work. The lesson in negotiation stuck with Ray. It stuck hard. She discovered that even simple acts of grooming could be negotiated to her end. In the first half of her tenth year, the only time she would brush her teeth, wash her hair, or take a shower was when money exchanged hands. More precisely, leaving ours and entering hers. After a brief family meeting, my parents and I agreed that we had to cut her off cold turkey and deal with the consequences. It was three weeks before Ray realized that hair washing was not a career. Ray, age 12. Sometime in the winter of Ray's seventh grade year, she made an enemy. His name was Brandon Wheeler. The genesis of their conflict has always remained somewhat fuzzy. Ray likes her privacy as much as I do. What I do know is that Brandon transferred to Ray's school in the fall of that same year. Within weeks, he was one of the most popular boys in her class. He excelled in sports, possessed a firm grasp of all academic subject matter, and had clear skin. Ray had no problem with him until one day in class, when Jeremy Schumann was reading aloud from a passage in Huckleberry Finn, Brandon offered a dead-on imitation of Jeremy's stutter. The class laughed uproariously, which only encouraged Brandon, who added the Schumann imitation to his regular playlist. Ray never had a problem with Brandon's previous impersonations, which included a red-headed boy with a lisp, a girl with horn-rimmed glasses and a limp, and a teacher with a wandering eye. Ray wasn't even friends with Schumann, but for whatever reason this rubbed her the wrong way and she was determined to put an end to it. Ray's first line of attack was an anonymous typed note that read, Leave Jeremy alone or you will be very, very sorry. The next day, when Ray caught sight of Wheeler cornering Schumann during the lunch hour, apparently thinking the note was from the victim himself, Ray decided to come clean. Wheeler then spread the word around school that Ray and Jeremy Schumann were a couple. While this infuriated Ray, she kept her cool as she plotted her revenge. I cannot say how my sister acquired this information, but she discovered that Brandon was not 12 but 14 and was repeating seventh grade for the second time. The next time Brandon was flattered for his excellence in academics, Ray made sure her classmates understood that it was a matter of practice and not talent. Some minor verbal sparring between my sister and the 14-year-old 7th grader ensued, but Brandon soon learned that talk was Ray's weapon of choice, and he resorted to the only weapon he knew. While I have never met a girl as mentally tough as Ray, she favors my mother, and at the age of 12 was still under 4 foot 10 and barely 80 pounds. She can run fast, but there were times she didn't have the chance. When I saw the unmistakable rash of an Indian burn on her wrist, I asked her if she wanted me to take care of it. Ray said no. When she came home with a black eye from a, quote, dodgeball accident, I asked again. Ray insisted that everything was under control. But I got the feeling that the constant bullying was starting to break her. 
I had just picked up Petra from her apartment, and we were on our way to a movie when my cell phone rang. Petra answered it. Hello? No, it's Petra Ray. Izzy's right here. Uh Uh-huh. What happened to your bike? Yeah, we're not far. Sure. Bye. Petra hung up the phone. We need to pick up your sister at school. What happened to her bike? She said it doesn't work. We were five minutes away. Ray was sitting on the grass outside, her bike in pieces in front of her the $500 mountain bike that David had given her for her birthday. I saw several boys standing some distance back, laughing at her expense. Ray told me to pop the trunk, and Petra helped her gather the spoils of the wreckage and put them inside. Ray jumped into the back seat, took out one of her school books, and pretended to read. I could see her eyes watering, but I couldn't quite believe it. I hadn't seen Ray cry since she was eight years old and ripped open her arm on a barbed wire fence. She had bled so much that day that it had been impossible to see the actual wound. Ray, please, let me handle this, I said, dying for a chance to set things straight. We sat in silence for a few minutes. Then she looked over at the flock of boys and caught sight of Brandon waving cheerily at her. And that was it. Okay, she whispered. I was out of the car. As I swaggered across the grounds to the pack of future frat boys, I tried to gauge what level of bully I was dealing with. I have a knack for looking menacing, at least for a woman, so I made sure to walk slowly and purposefully, deep down hoping that a few of the boys would scatter before I got too close. Three answered my prayers and took off, leaving four behind. At five foot eight, I had at least three inches and fifteen pounds on Brandon, the tallest, and I knew I could take him. But if all four boys decided to stick around, I could not predict the outcome. Petra read my mind and got out of the car. Leaning against the passenger door, she slipped a knife out of her back pocket and started cleaning her fingernails with it. The blade reflected the sun, and before I reached Brandon, the rest of the boys decided that it was time to go home. In fact, so did Brandon. You, stop, I said, pointing at my target. Brandon turned around and forced a sneer in my direction. I moved closer, backing him up against a chain-link fence. Wipe that dumbass smile off your face, I seethed. The smile disappeared, but not the attitude. What are you going to do, beat me up? That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm bigger than you, I'm tougher than you, I'm angrier than you, and I fight dirtier than you. Plus, I've got backup, you don't. So if I were to make a wager on how this fight would turn out, I'd bet on me. What's the big deal? We were just joking around, Brandon said, his nerves showing through. Joking. Interesting. Do you think destruction of property is funny? A black eye is funny? Intimidating a girl half your size is funny? Well then, we are going to have a good time. I grabbed his shirt by the collar, twisted it around, and shoved him against the fence. I'm sorry, he whispered nervously. Are you? Yes. Listen to me very carefully, I whispered back. If you lay a finger on my sister or her property ever again, if you look at her the wrong way, I will fuck you up. Got it? Brandon nodded his head. Say I understand. I understand. I released my grip and told him to get lost. Brandon ran away, a changed man, I told myself. When I got back into the car, Petra suggested we go rough up some punks at the preschool around the corner. I looked at Ray through my rearview mirror. You okay? Ray returned my gaze with dry eyes. Then she asked, Can we get ice cream? As if nothing had happened at all. I wish that were the end of the story, but it isn't. Brandon ran home crying to his father, who in turn called my parents, and followed up by filing assault charges against me. 
When Ray and I arrived at home with our ice cream cones, my mother and father had already received the first threatening phone call from Mr. Wheeler. Their stern expressions offered a flashback of my misspent youth. I'm sure they were wondering whether the old Isabel was making a comeback. My father suggested we speak privately in the office and told Ray to go watch TV. Ray, of course, didn't watch TV. She lurked by the door, which my father had locked, eavesdropping on our conversation. Isabel, what were you thinking? Believe me, you would have done the same thing. You threatened to kill a 12-year-old boy. First of all, he's 14. He's a kid. And I didn't threaten to kill him. I threatened to fuck him up. There is a difference, you know. What is wrong with you? My mother yelled. That is the most reckless, irresponsible thing you've done in years, screamed my father. Then Ray smacked her hand against the door and shouted at the top of her lungs, Leave her alone! My mother shouted back, Ray, go watch TV! Ray banged on the locked door again. The thud was so loud it sounded as if she was throwing her whole body against it. No! Leave Isabel alone! Open the door! My father sighed and let Ray into the room. Ray pled my case, which I didn't because I've got too much attitude. My father was forced to tone down his reprimand, too. In the future, let us handle this sort of thing, Izzy. There was almost nothing my mother wouldn't do to protect her children, even if it was morally ambiguous. It was Mom who handled the potential assault charges, mostly because she can spot an Achilles heel with almost X-ray vision. If there was a single, unfiltered trait I inherited directly from her, that might be it. Olivia ran a civil lawsuit check on Mr. Wheeler and discovered a handful of sexual harassment suits in his wake. The pattern piqued my mother's curiosity, and she ran an informal tale on Wheeler over the next week. She caught him with a mistress, snapped some revealing photographs, and then cornered him at the coffee shop on his way to work. My mother suggested he drop the charges. Wheeler said no. My mother showed him the photos and repeated her suggestion, adding that she expected Ray's bike to be replaced within the week. Wheeler called her a bitch, but the charges were dropped by the afternoon and a new bike was delivered on Friday. Ray never forgot what I did for her that day. However, I should remind you that Ray's brand of loyalty takes an entirely different form than the devotion to which one might be accustomed. While she can readily tell you that she loves you, it is entirely void of the sappy heart of a greeting card. She is merely stating a fact for your own edification. There were times it seemed Ray lived to please our parents and sometimes even me, but this often lulled us into a false sense of security. Ray's interest in pleasing ended if it didn't align with her own agenda. Yet there were times she followed instructions with the blind faithfulness of a well-trained dog. How to Evade Capture When Ray was about 13, the local media began to cover child abductions with the regularity of weather reports. Statistically, there was a decline in abductions compared to previous years. However, the media's alarmist tactics engendered a veritable mass paranoia among parents of school-aged children. Even my own mom and dad took the bait. On the 6 o'clock news, when retired special agent Charles Manning presented a series of preemptive tactics to ward off child predators, my parents took notes and implemented the only one that was not already in use. Avoid routines. Ray was instructed to lose her habits, to mix up her daily routine, to become a moving target. To see the difference, you had to be acquainted with her previous morning ritual. She staggered out of bed at eight, brushed her teeth, grabbed a Pop-Tart on her way out the door, and rode her bike to school, slipping into the classroom at 8.30 on the dot. On the weekends, she slept until 10 and then spent an hour making an enormous sugar-laden breakfast. She was given her assignment Sunday night, and by the next morning, Ray had fully implemented an entirely new routine. Monday. Ray wakes up at 6 a.m., 
She goes for a 20-minute jog and takes a shower. Ray doesn't like jogging, or showering, for that matter. She drinks a glass of calcium-fortified orange juice and eats a bowl of cornflakes. She walks to school, arriving 35 minutes early. Tuesday. Ray sets her alarm for 7.30 a.m. and hits the snooze button for the next 45 minutes. She crawls out of bed at 8.15, meanders downstairs to the kitchen, and begins preparing chocolate chip pancakes from scratch. Even though my apartment has a fully functioning kitchen, I usually head downstairs in the morning and drink my parents' coffee and read their paper. I observe Ray's activities and determine that she is in no rush. Then I state the obvious. Ray, it's 8.25. I know. Doesn't school start at 8.30? I'm going to be late today, Ray says casually as she scoops pancake batter into the griddle. Wednesday. I arrive in the kitchen at 8.10 a.m. Ray pours me a cup of coffee and hands me the newspaper. Read fast, she says. You're driving me to school. Don't you think you're taking this too far, Ray? No, I don't, she says as she takes a bite out of an apple. The last time I saw Ray eat an apple, it was pureed and came in a tiny jar with a picture of a baby on it. In fact, produce in general has never been a part of Ray's food pyramid, which is primarily built on ice cream, candy, cheese-flavored snack food, and the occasional beef jerky. I'm so pleased to see her ingest something that fell from a tree that I don't protest when Ray grabs her backpack and tells me she's going to wait in my car, a 1995 Buick Skylark. Thursday. At 7.45 a.m., my father yells from the bottom of the staircase, Ray, you still need a ride to school? Yeah, Ray shouts from the distance. Then hurry up, my father bellows back. Ray rushes to the top of the staircase, jumps onto the banister, and slides down to the bottom. As she and my father head out the door, my father says, I asked you not to do that anymore. But you told me to hurry. My father tosses Ray a Pop-Tart as they get into the car. Friday. I enter the kitchen at 8.05 a.m. Ray sits at the table drinking a glass of milk, another first, and eating a peanut butter and banana sandwich. How are you getting to school today? I ask, praying that she won't hit me up for a ride. David's driving me. How'd you swing that? We negotiated. I don't bother with a follow-up question. I pour myself a cup of coffee and sit down at the table. You've done that five days in a row, Isabel, drinking coffee and reading the paper. No one's going to abduct me, Ray. That's what all abductees say. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.